0: We could not have a better setup for a sermon about Jonathan and David in the Bible today. What a beautiful song. Thank you, men. Thank you so much for the friendship you exhibited and sang about in that. So there were two men. Uh, Their names were Phil and Jim. They were best of friends in high school. And then they went to college together. Following college, they signed up for the military together. And by strange circumstances and strange events, they wound up actually serving together on the same front in Germany in World War I. The Time came for a day of battle, and they went out to fight together. And as they were fighting, things started to turn against the American troops, and eventually the commander called a retreat. So in the, in the busyness, the scurry, and all this, every, everybody comes back. Phil notices that Jim isn't back yet. So he decides he's gonna wait just a a few more minutes. A few more minutes pass, still no Jim. So he goes up to the commanding officer and he says, I need to go, I need to find Jim. And the commanding officer forbids it, says no, you're not going. It's too dangerous, you can't go back out there, I'm not losing another man. Phil goes. Anyway, he finds his friend. Next thing you know, the commander is looking and here comes Phil carrying the body of Jim in his arms. The commander berates Phil, you disobeyed, you shouldn't have done this. This is horrible, it was a risk for nothing. He was dead anyway. And Phil says, you know, it wasn't a waste because when I got there, Jim looked at me and said, I knew you would come. I knew you would come. A couple of weeks ago, we we talked about the world's most famous enemies, David and Goliath. Today we get to talk about the world's most famous friends, David and Jonathan. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture of love between two friends, and we're gonna look at that in a detailed way today. So I'd like to start with some background. I wanna remind you that King Saul is the king of Israel. He's the first king of Israel, and he's king because Israel said, we no longer want to do it God's way, we wanna have our own king. And so so King Saul becomes the king of Israel, and he is supposed to represent God on earth. He is supposed to be, be leading and guiding and ruling through the leadership and rulership of God and representing the Lord to his people and leading his people in conquest and in judgment and how to live a passionate life for the Lord. But Saul fails at that, and because he fails at that, The Lord comes and tells Saul, your dynasty will end with you. Your son, your grandson, and and all of your your future descendants, they will never be able to be king because you have failed me. His dynasty would end. Meanwhile, the Lord goes to David, a young man, and anoints him to be the next king. So David is, is anointed king, but it will be years before he actually gets to be the king. But his first act, of course, is when he fought Goliath. What a battle. All of Israel is shaking in their boots. Here's this giant screaming and defying the armies of Israel. And David, this young man, goes and says, I'll take him because the Lord's got the battle, not me. And he does. He takes Goliath down, and this results in a, in a tremendous victory for Israel over the Philistines who had come in and, and really imposed upon the land that the Lord had given them. And then in chapter 18 of of 1 Samuel, that's not where we'll be spending our time, but I would like to read that to you, the opening of chapter 18. So what happens is after David slays Goliath, uh, he's meeting with Saul, King Saul, and Saul is asking him some questions. And then chapter 18 opens and it says, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan, who is Saul's son, the would-be king, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him, David, return to his father's house. Saul has a jealous eye, keeping that eye on David, making sure David doesn't get out of line. David, you're going to stay in my palace with me so I can watch you. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe, the royal robe, that he was wearing and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. A great act of saying, I realize I will not be king, but you will be king. So Jonathan found in David somebody of like mind, of like spirit. All the rest of Israel was was fearful and faithless. But Jonathan, do you remember back when Jonathan himself took on a battle because Israel was sitting there doing nothing and Jonathan decided to go in with his armor bearer and he started a battle that again gave a victory? Well, now we have David who's a man after his own heart. David, somebody who who sees God for who he is, who knows God's strength, knows God's power, knows God's passion to protect Israel and is willing to throw everything on the Lord and depend on him for everything. So Jonathan found a, a beautiful had a beautiful relationship with God and, was, and found a man that he could share this with. David, who also had a beautiful relationship with God. These were two men who didn't want to mingle with the fearful and the fear and, and the, the faithless. They wanted to stay with the strong and knowing that God is the one who is over them and leading them. And what a great act of humility for Saul to have taken off his royal robe and given it to David. And to David. Jonathan gave it to David. Did I say that wrong? Thank you. You keep fixing me as I go, all right? All these names, wow. Jonathan gave his robe to David. What a great act of humility. It says that their souls were knit together said that Jonathan loved David as himself and I'm reminded of the New Testament principle that we read in Galatians 5:14 where the apostle Paul says for the whole law the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself So what we have here is something that we see all the time. The New Testament often gives the principles. The Old Testament shows us how it's lived out or how it's not lived out. And that's what we see, the New Testament principle, love your neighbor as yourself, Jonathan and David living it out. This is God's standard for friendship. That means this is how we ought to be friends with one another. It says we are to love one another, love like we love ourselves. Now, if that's the standard, then we have to define what love is. And we know that the Bible doesn't define love as the feeling of love, but that love is an action. Love is something you do. It's something you show. It's an action. And so if we are going to love one another like we love ourselves, then we're going to take care of one another. We're going to share our lives with one another. We're going to carry one another's burdens We're going to bear with one another, with our differences and the different ways we do things. We're going to forgive one another. Faith Community Church is going through a time right now where I think our, our community among ourselves is, is really growing. I'm so thankful for it and I'm especially excited because coming in September we have a, a new program of small groups coming up and, and I think this increase of small groups and the focus will really help us to become friends within those groups. In addition, we're developing a a, a discipleship plan that will start in September as well called the Vine Project, and uh, as we're putting that together, I'm so excited because it's men on men, women on women, and, and growing together and becoming close friends and learning how to be the kind of friend that Jonathan and David were. I'm excited about those things, but You know, with everything, we can always do better. I love love the book of Thessalonians where Paul just says, you love one another, now love each other more. You're bearing with one another, now bear with one another more. And that's what I wanna say to us. We need to bear with one another more. When we live with other believers, we have to have so much forbearance. You know, we are all different. We have different ways of processing things, We have different emotional responses, different ideas of how to do things. We have different ways of communicating, different maturity levels. Every one of us is different from one another. We so need to be able to bear with one another's differences. We need a huge amount of maturity and understanding to accomplish that, much greater than what you and I would have naturally. And this is why we need Jesus. The Apostle John says in the New Testament, he says, the way you bear with one another is a reflection of your relationship with Christ. Wow. So how are you bearing with the people here in this congregation? And is it really a reflection of your relationship with Christ? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. You see, you and I need to value one another and value our relationship with one another so much more than we value our own pride, our own entitlement, our own desires, our own ideas. And when, when we love one another in that way, when we do what Philippians says to, to with humility, regard one another as more important than ourselves. When we do that, we are Christian. We are showing the way Jesus loved us. We are showing the love of Christ. You see, Jonathan and David, the love between them, that they loved each other as they loved themselves, is a picture of Jesus' love for us and what our love is supposed to be with one another. So then, back to the story. In the next chapter, chapter 19, Saul's jealousy of David is rising. And he's so angry with David that he commands his entire household to kill David when they have the opportunity. Well, Jonathan, Saul's son, warns David about this. Hey, look, my dad's got it out for you. You better, you better stop, you better get away. And he also advocates for David. He says to to his father, Saul, what has David done? He's, He's all for Israel. He won over Goliath. Why are you trying to kill him? And Saul actually repents. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. But it's not a true repentance because it was only a repentance with his words and not with his actions. And repentance isn't repentance unless it's a repentance of actions, not just words. So of course, by the end of the chapter, Saul is trying to kill David again, he's pursuing him. So David runs to Ramah to tell Samuel, the judge, what's going on and then he runs to Nioth to hide from Saul and Saul finds out he's in Nioth, so he sends a band of men there and when they go go there to kill David, The Spirit of the Lord comes on them, and they prophesy. Sends a second band of men, same thing happens. Saul says, if you want something done, you gotta do it yourself. So he goes to Nioth, same thing happens. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he prophesies, he strips his clothes, and he's laying shamefully naked in front of the people. And that's where Saul is left at the end of 19. So we come to the beginning of chapter 20, and it starts out with David fleeing from Nioth. So I ask myself, why? David, why are you fleeing? Why are you running away again? Haven't you seen how God saved you from Goliath? Haven't you seen that that as Saul's throwing spears at you, that God led the spears away from you? Haven't you seen how God uh, developed this beautiful friendship in Jonathan with you, his father's enemy? David, haven't you seen that God even made Michal, Saul's daughter fall in love with you and become your wife. God has gone before you over and over and over. David, don't you see this? And you know, we often think, well, David is, you know, David's the man after God's own heart. The Bible calls him that. And we think, well, his only downfall was the situation with Bathsheba and, you know, past that, he's a great guy. But we see this pattern in David. He runs he hides, he flees, he schemes, and that's what he's doing here. Later on, he, he's gonna run and hide in Gath and pretend to be insane just so he can get away from Saul. After that, he'll run to another Philistine land where, where he's, he's actually fighting for the Philistines or at least makes it seem like he is. David's running, he's scheming. And you know, isn't it easy for us to forget how powerful God is, and that's what happened. David just forgot, like, God does all this stuff, and he forgot, is God really still there for me? Life, the pressure's on, I'm this far from death. Is God still gonna be faithful? Ah, he is, he is, but we do the same thing, don't we? When the pressure comes on, we run, we hide, we scheme. Oh, what God would do with us if we would stop doing that, if we would just rest firm in God's promise, that God said what he said and he will do it and we know he will do it. See, David was told that he would be king by God. God told him, you're gonna be king. Saul can do nothing to stop it. He can throw a million spears at David and not one of them will hit because God said, David, you will be king. Our God can be trusted we can trust him. Can we not? We can trust God. We have the whole Bible, every word in the Bible proving over and over and over that we can trust God. We have men and women going through history of following God and and saw that God was trustworthy. And you have your own life, however old you are. You have years of seeing God has been faithful on my birthday, whenever it's my birthday, I like to actually count up how many days I lived. And I always thank the Lord for that many thousands of days that he's been faithful to me. See, God is faithful. Oh, but we forget. I know we forget. We are weak and and we can understand David in this. So this is why in verse one of chapter 20, David says, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? And then in verse three, your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight, Jonathan. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this or he will be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. You can hear David's desperation in that statement. And what he's doing is he's he's asking Jonathan, Can I really trust you, the king's son, who's supposed to be the king? Can I really trust you? Are you really going to betray your father in favor of me? Yes, I know you gave me your robe a while back, but are you going to want it back? Can I really trust that you're going to support me and endorse me as the new king, as God said, would happen? I love Jonathan's response. Verse 4 Jonathan says, whatever you say, I will do. I love that because Jonathan doesn't scold him. You know, Jonathan, Jonathan doesn't say, you, you, you're not trusting God. Hey, brother, better, better shape up and trust the Lord in this. He just says, whatever you do, whatever you say, I will do it. I, let's see, let's sound out my father and see if he really is against you. Whatever you say, I will do. And actually, later on in verse 23, in chapter 23, Jonathan says, Your father will, my father will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. See, Jonathan never doubts God. But he, even though he is not doubting, he's patient with David. Whatever you say, I will do. You know, Jesus said something very similar. In John chapter 15, he said, you are my friend's, if you do what I command. Whatever I say, you do. You are my friends if you do what I command. It's a little hard to talk about this, but you realize that Jesus' friendship is conditional? It's predicated on our obedience. Now, we're not talking about salvation here, but we're talking about the relationship with Jesus he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. So what does he command? Well, he commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So again, we're not talking about salvation. Salvation is not something you and I can earn. We cannot do anything to gain salvation. You can do all the good works you want. You can do all the religious activities you want. And God looks and says, mm-mm, doesn't make a difference to me. What makes a difference is whether or not you accept the sacrifice that I have set up for your sin. You see, God looks at our situation, and he says, these are sinners. They have no hope. They're destined for eternal destruction. And I love them too much to let that happen. So God sacrificed his son Jesus on the cross for us, who paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And then he says, this is my gift to you, world. Here's my gift. Receive it. And we receive that by faith, right? Salvation is a gift of grace, means a gift from God. And we receive it by faith. Faith is the hand that receives the gift. It's not something we do to earn it. We didn't earn it at all. God just says, I want to do this for you. Because I love you and I want to save you. And every one of us have the choice to receive that gift of salvation. And we receive that by faith. But believer, our obedience to his command is the demonstration of that faith. Faith without works is dead. Which means that if you say you're saved, but you're not obeying, you might not actually have the faith that it takes to have been saved, and you need to question it. You see, God wants us to look at Jesus and say, whatever you say, I will do. Again, repentance is way more than words. You may have prayed a prayer way back when, but if you're not following in steps of obedience over and over and over, what is your faith other than dead? So can we say, to Jesus, whatever you say, whatever it is, I will do it. This is what Jonathan said to David. And so David comes up with this plan. He says, he says so the new moon festival is coming up. I'm not going to be there. Tell your father, if he asks, that I went to be with my family. If he gets angry, then we'll know that he, is, uh, that he wants to kill me. And then you have to let me know. And so they devise this little plan that if, if Jonathan shoots arrows one direction or another direction, uh, David will know that uh, Saul is for him or against him. So we read in verse 30 to 33 then what happens. See, Jonathan is at the dinner. David's seat is empty. Saul lets one day go, hmm. no David. Next day comes, seat's still empty. Jonathan, my son, why is David not present at the royal dinner? Oh, well, David asked for permission to go and be with his family for the new moon festival. Saul blows up, absolutely blows up. And we read then in verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor, his, nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. There's no passing anything over on Jonathan, is there? He knew pretty clearly. You know, there's so much irony in that statement. It's just amazing. You know, Paul says, uh, Saul says, you're the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. It was Saul who was perverse and rebellious. He He says, this is to the shame of your mother's nakedness. It was Saul who was naked at the end of the last chapter, not his mother. And he, he keeps calling Jonathan, or he keeps calling David, the son of Jesse. It's a derogatory term. He should be calling him the future king, but he's saying he's a, he's a son of a nobody, the son of a nobody shepherd. The no good son of a no good shepherd. And really, he, and he says, if David is alive, you'll never be king. That's why, not why Jonathan's not gonna be king. He's not gonna be king because of Saul, his father's disobedience. And if he was so concerned about Jonathan being king, why is he throwing spears at him to kill him? It doesn't even make sense. But this is the insanity of Saul. But Saul did get something right. He got this right. Jonathan chose David. He chose David. He was forced to make a choice. Will I follow my father, who is following man's way, the way of Adam, the way of rebellion, the way of saying, I know better than God. I'm going to do it my way. Or will he follow David, who is following God's plan and trying trying to obey God? Will he follow that? You see, there's this line. Again, we talked about this. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people of the world, and then there are believers, the people of God and we're living two separate lines, and those lines intersect a lot, and there's some sparks when they do, but that's what comes of a choice. You see, Jonathan did choose David, and there is no turning back, and Saul knows. Saul knows that Jonathan has made this choice, and when John, and that now Jonathan will be an enemy of the king, an enemy of his father. Jonathan sacrificed the relationship with his father in order to follow God's plan and God's way. So believer, when you and I choose Christ, we have a first love relationship with him. And that first love relationship with him should show up in such powerful ways that there would be blatant consequences The world knows as we live in obedience to Christ, the world knows we are different. The world hates that difference and may even hate you for the difference. God's way is diametrically opposed to the world's way. When Jonathan confessed his faithfulness to David, his allegiance to David and not to his father, he knew that that was at the cost of his relationship with his own father. When we, Our first love followers of Christ. There is a cost, and spears may come at us as well. Now we don't look for persecution, right? We're like, oh, bring on the persecution. We want that. No, we don't look it. But but the world is going to see the difference, and they're going to hate us. At least that's how different we are supposed to be. You see, that difference should show up in the way we do relationships the way we do politics, the way we do finances, the way we do our, have our work ethics, the way we do family, it should be so obvious to the world that they are extremely uncomfortable with the way we do those things. This is why Cain killed Abel. This is why Pharaoh sought to exterminate the Jews. This is why the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders exterminated Jesus or thought they had because they couldn't take the difference in God's people. So our choosing of Christ is a choice to reject the world. And the question is, have we? Have we really rejected the way of the world? Are we following closely? The thing is, you know, you realize that Saul had the choice too, right? He wasn't obligated to do his thing. Saul could have just as easily chosen God's way and given up his throne. But he wanted to keep on his throne even though God said, that throne isn't yours anymore. And who's gonna win that fight? Well, we know God is. God will certainly win. He was not able to give up his throne. And so back to the story in verse 34. It says, Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Jonathan was offended because David's honor had been attacked. Jonathan defended David's honor before his father, even to the point of relinquishing his own honor, risking his own honor. He honored his friend more than he honored himself. The question I asked as I studied this is, am I as zealous to protect your honor over mine, as Jonathan was with David. And you have to ask yourself the same question. Are we that zealous to protect the honor of somebody else? You know, that's what kingdom living is. Is the honor of others so important to me that I'm willing to put my own honor or reputation aside? Kingdom living living the way Jesus told us to live. Jesus calls us to this. He doesn't only call us to it, he equips us for it because we can't do it on our own and he gives us the Holy Spirit. So are we submitted to the Holy Spirit in this? Because it's only by submitting to him that I could possibly honor you more than I want to honor me. Your honor, your reputation, should be so important that I am willing to risk my own for you. So this means that when I speak to you or when I speak about you, it's only edifying for the purpose of building up. This means that, that I will put aside gossip, and when gossip is taking place, I will, I will turn aside or challenge it, and I will not participate in the gossip about you. This means that I should not share embarrassing moments about you with others. This means that my love for you should cover your multitude of sins and not bring them up again. Oh, God help us. God help us to be that for one another. It's what we have to be. It's what we're called to be. It's what Christ empowers us to be when we are obedient. Jonathan lived this way and he honored David in this way. So Saul's hatred is certainly confirmed. And with that, he goes and talks to, to, uh, Jonathan goes and talks to David about it. And they realize together as they're weeping that this means now that David will need to live as an outcast. He'll have to live outside the community. He will be a fugitive, a runaway, a rebel. He will have to leave his family and his friends. And he doesn't know it yet, but it will be for about 10 years Ten years, he will be in that position before he becomes king. I like to read about this. This starts in verse 41. When the lad was gone, the lad was, was the uh, arrow chaser. David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. So he's bowing before his friend Jonathan. And, David, and they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between you and me, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed, while Jonathan went to the city, and it would be a long time before they see each other again. But did you get what just happened? At the beginning of the chapter, David sang, Jonathan! I don't know if I can trust you. I want to trust you. You, you made a promise to me, but, but it's really put to the test. Will you come through with the test? And, and now at the end of the t- chapter, Jonathan, Jonathan is saying, David, it's really true. My father wants to kill you. It's really true. You will be king. When you are king, will you really protect me? Will, you, will I really still be your friend? Will you really protect me and my descendants? Because you know the practice at this time was that when a new dynasty came into power, they would kill off all of the descendants of the previous king, so there was no threat. So it would be very understandable for David to get into power, kill Jonathan, kill his sons, his grandsons. And we know later on that it doesn't happen. David is faithful to his friend Jonathan. David protects Jonathan's descendants and his progeny. So beautiful. ah! Uh, so, so what a challenging passage of scripture for us today. David and Jonathan. And we have talked about repeatedly now that David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. In the Old Testament, David is a Christ figure. And we look to him and we have to, have to with all his faults, all, all his downfalls, David foreshadows Christ, he represents Jesus Christ, and he is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes from his human line. So, as we read this passage then, I say that you and I have the opportunity to be Jonathan if we are willing to humble ourselves. See, Jonathan humbled himself. He was willing to give up the throne in order that David could have the throne. Now, it wasn't natural for him to do this. It wasn't just his personality type or his disposition. It was choice after choice after choice. He willingly made one decision after another saying, I'm not having the throne. David, you will have the throne. I will continue to give that to you. He was giving up his self-rule. And that's really what this is about today. It's about you and I giving up our throne, giving up our self-rule in order for Jesus to be on the throne. Kyle Eidelman, a, a preacher, said this. He said, being humbled is something we think of as passive activity. That is, somebody or something humbles us. We are humbled by unemployment, by a failed relationship, by a dream shattered But Jesus speaks of humbling that is active. We are the humblers. This is not something we wait for to occur naturally. We must humble ourselves. So being humble is something we choose to do just as Jonathan did repeatedly and as Saul did not do repeatedly. You and I have the choice, daily, hourly, moment by moment, to humble ourselves and say, the throne isn't mine. It's yours, Lord. Keep me off of it. You know, humility is the masterwork of Jesus. It's how he lived. It's how he loved. Philippians chapter two says that he humbled himself, being in very nature and essence God, but didn't cling to the glory that came with it. And this is what communion is all about, when we celebrate communion here in just a moment, we are celebrating Jesus giving himself up, denying his throne, giving himself up, and he's doing that so that you and I, who are nothing, can become something. What do we become? Children of the king we become heirs of the throne. It's ironic, we give up our throne in order to become heirs of the throne, the throne of God. When I give up myself, say, I don't wanna be on my throne, I come off of it, which I, I can't do very well anyway, right? None of us lead our lives well. But when we put Jesus on the throne then, he makes us his child and we become heirs of the throne. We are, we are God's kingdom. We are his people. We are citizens of heaven. And so how do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? Well, it means that you and I choose to confess our sins to one another and to Jesus. It means that you and I practice regularly treating one another with more regard than we would have for ourselves. How do we be humble? Well, it means that we give sacrificially and anonymously. We be humble by seeking help and godly counsel. We are humble when we put aside our prejudices and say, you are more important than I am. We are humble when we put put aside our entitlement. I should have known, I should have been the one. When we put that aside, and put others first. That's how we humble ourselves. This passage is a great illustration of the choice that's between you and me. The choice to be like Saul, too proud, too scared, or like Jonathan, daily choices of humility before God. You know, no happiness comes from your own ruling. God is all wise. We can trust him with that. So just understand one thing, though. When you make that choice to be completely obedient, when you make the choice to say whatever you say, Jesus, I will do, that you risk losing family and friends. You risk that, but Jesus promises this. In spite of the rejection that may come from the world, Jesus says you will receive in the present age, this isn't future, this is today, now, You will receive in this present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with the persecutions. And in the age to come, you'll have eternal life. What's he talking about? He's talking about church. See, when you make the choice to follow Jesus, you may be rejected by family and friends, but you've got a new family. Now, we're not the prettiest bunch of people here, but we are people who are trying to practice putting you first. We are people who are trying to practice not looking at skin color. We are people who are trying to practice obedience. We are people who are trying to practice forgiving one another. We are people who are trying to practice Jesus' love because this is exactly what he did. See, Christ did this for us. He said, this command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And so let us say to him, whatever you say, I will do. Now let's come to the communion table.